certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh, God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. Welcome to this bonus episode of Claremont in Conversation. If you're new to this podcast and jumping into the series, thanks for joining us. I'm Natalie Bongiolo, and over the next two episodes, we're going to bring you up to speed with everything that's happened so far in WA's Trial of the Century. Joining me in this two-part catch-up will be the West Australian's legal affairs editor, Tim Clark, who's been sitting in court now on this case for 57 days. Tim, mm-hmm. <laughs> hello. Hi. Um, well, let's start by just briefly chatting about the case the three young women who disappeared, the man who stands accused of their murders, Bradley Edwards, and it all starts back in the leafy suburb of Claremont in 1996. Yeah, that's right, Nat. So Claremont is a very uh, salubrious uh, area of Perth. Um, it's a, one of the western suburbs, as we call it here. It was, and still is, um, high socioeconomic uh Clientele, if you want to put it that way. Good shops, nice area, leafy, as you said. Um, And it was also, back in 96, 97, a spot that uh, the young and the happy uh, loved to go of an evening uh, to enjoy the beautiful Lake Perth sunshine and have a drink and uh, just generally enjoy the surroundings um, and... That is why this case became so high profile so quickly because so many people enjoyed Claremont, did exactly what these three girls were doing, which was socialising of an evening uh, at a night spot or a couple of night spots. Um, But for them, uh, it turned out to be the last night of their lives because all three went missing from very close together area um, and they all of them were were never seen again and it very quickly became uh, the theory of the police that it was one person responsible for taking all these girls uh, taking them off the street taking them away from their families and ultimately taking uh, taking away their lives yeah it really was a time of fear for so many people and you know decades later people still, prior to the charging of Bradley Edwards, people were still fearful and talked about Claremont Mm. as this place where young women had disappeared and one, in the case of Sarah Spears, never to be found again, and then Jane Rimmer and Kira Glennon, who were both found in bushland. Yeah, it's the case that has persisted for uh, more than two decades through the police, through the courts, through the media and basically through the entirety of of Western Australian society because everyone had uh, a view, everyone had, it seemed, um, a connection in some way, whether it be just having been to Claremont, knowing one of the families. Um, Everyone has has been touched by this case one way or the other. And as you say, it all started, ironically, on Australia Day, uh, 1990, uh, 1996, when um, when Sarah went missing. That's right. So if you're just joining us, uh, we are right now halfway through this trial and we're going to take you back to the start. And it starts with what the court called the civilian witnesses. So let's just um, have a chat through the first days of the trial. 
Yeah, so it had been a long time coming, obviously, as I've just explained. But after Mr. Bradley Robert Edwards, who is the accused man, he is the man that the state of Western Australia say was the man that took these three girls, these three young women, and uh, and killed them. He was charged with uh, two of those crimes in December 2016, later charged with the third one, which is which was Sarah. And it took nearly uh, more than three years for him to get to court to face those charges. Uh, he's denied murder all the way along. And uh, on that first day, we've heard really for the first time the entirety of the case against Mr. Edwards, which begins actually before Sarah went missing, some time before. But the three charges, that he, the, the main charges that he faced are obviously the murders of Sarah, of Jane Rimmer, who was the second uh, young woman to go missing, and then Kira Glennon, who was the third woman to go missing. So, as I said, Sarah was the first woman to young woman to go missing. She was out on Australia Day uh, night, January 26, 1996, had been to the pub, um, then went to another pub with her friends, and she disappeared. And the first days of this trial were bringing that story um, to the court and how, and how it all came to be. And as you said, Nat, civilian witnesses were the first major portion of this trial, the first month or so of this trial. Um, and many of them were direct relatives of the three young women that went missing, um, family members, parents, siblings of Sarah, Jane and Kira. They were friends of the three young women who were actually with them on the nights they went missing. They were in the orbit of the three women and when they went missing, taxi drivers, other patrons of the two pubs that the girls were at, um, bystanders, um, just locals that were, happened to be in Claremont at the time. And then possibly most um, shockingly, we heard from what the Crown, the prosecution, had called the um, Telstra living witnesses, um, which were women who told a very similar story, or very similar to what the prosecution say the story is, as how, how Sarah, Kira and Jane went missing in terms of being approached in Clement or the very close to by a man in a car, a white car, um, at times described as a, a car with a Telstra logo on it, Telstra being the national telecom provider in Australia, which is what the company that Mr. Edwards has worked for or had worked for up until his arrest for nearly 30 years. And they, were they all came to court and told their story of how they felt somewhat threatened, intimidated or concerned or perturbed by an interaction that they'd had with a with their man at night on the streets of Claremont or very nearby um, and at, at times that um, that testimony was was very confronting yes. to listen to hear and to listen to, um, because the phrase there, but for the grace of God go I, just yes. kept popping into your head because we know three young women are dead, um, and if all this evidence is to be proved true, uh, then there were opportunities for several other women to uh, to meet a similar fate. As you mentioned, I mean, some of those witnesses' accounts were really quite shocking and, you know, some people were quite distressed 
in the stand when they were recounting these moments because they were thinking, as you said, by the grace of God, go I. Um, you know, they all told quite a similar tale, though, didn't they? You know, quite often they were walking home very late. They sometimes had had a few drinks. They got into this car. Um, and often they confused this car with what they thought to be a taxi. Mm. And... Um, you know, later though we we discover there was no taxi. They just thought they were hopping into taxis, um, and so these cases and and these people who were giving evidence um, obviously were very similar to the three women who had disappeared, starting with Sarah, who had been out enjoying a night in Claremont, like you said. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Sarah was an eighteen-year-old uh, young woman. Um, from a from a great family, solid family, um, a country family actually. Um, her father Don is a, a bit of a legendary sheep shearer yeah. um, down in the area that they live south of Perth. Um, but Sarah and her sister had come up to Perth to um, for their education. They went to uh, a school, very renowned school, Iona College, um, not far from Claremont actually. And Sarah had left school and was working and was a receptionist um, and was starting out her life um, yeah. in very, um, very hopeful circumstances. She was, uh, she was a, by all accounts, uh, a great student, um, a lovely, personable young woman, um, a huge group of friends in Perth and down south, very close to her family, very close to her father, Don, and her, her mum, Carol. Um, and very, very close to her sister, Amanda, who she was actually living with at, at the time. Yeah. Um, and as so many 18-year-olds uh, would have done on Australia Day, um, um, she was enjoying the day, enjoying the public holiday, enjoying the long weekend, um, had arranged to go out uh, for drinks with uh, a group of friends that night, then was due to go on a picnic um, in another beautiful part of Perth the following day and was was um, just looking forward to a, a lovely late summer long weekend. Had arranged that with her sister Amanda that she would be dropped off um, in Claremont, um, which is exactly what Amanda did. It gave her a lift um, and Amanda actually um, told the court that it was a hug and a kiss and an I love you and uh, um that was the last time she saw her sister alive. It was um, a very sad part of the trial, wasn't it? It's to, always... To I've, hear I've, from Amanda. Yeah, I've said, I've, for those who haven't been listening, I, I've said it previously and they would, everyone would understand the emotion that goes into a trial like this. But uh, for Amanda to have to remember the last, mm. very last moments with her sister, you can imagine the, uh, the trauma that would bring back, um, the, the grief, the fear that everyone felt, but certainly Sarah's family felt at that time, because after this night, it was it was immediately clear to everyone close to her that this wasn't um, just an ordinary circumstance. No. She hadn't gone um, AWOL. She hadn't gone off with friends without telling anyone because it's just not something she would ever do. It was very out of character for her. Uh, which is why they raised the alarm so yeah. quickly, wasn't it? Yes, and within days, within uh, the end of the weekend, actually, mm. um, this was a story. This was a media event. Um, Sarah's disappearance very quickly hit the, the headlines very hard and has really been out of the headlines uh, uh, over the last 25 years. Um, as 
as as emotional as that um, testimony from Amanda was, the very one of the very first, the very first day, in fact, and one of the very first hours of the trial, we heard Sarah's voice. Um, which even after nearly 60 days remains the, the one of the moments, one of the you know several moments that you still get um, goosebumps thinking about it. So, so after being at the pub um, up until about two o'clock in the morning, uh, Sarah told her friends that she, she, she was tired, she was going to leave, she had something to do in the next day. Um, but she didn't just wander off into the night. Um, Sarah was a very responsible girl by all accounts and she did exactly what anyone would hope their young teenage daughter who was alone at night would do. She rang a cab. She went to the phone box on the corner um, of, of Stirling Road and Stirling Highway, which was one of the main intersections near um, to the, the bars that she'd been, the bars being the Continental Hotel and the Bayview um, Club. And she called a cab. And... 25 years later um, we heard that call for the first time that call was played in public we knew it existed um, as a media and a, as a as a public western australian public we knew it existed that's right but we'd never heard it before um, and when we heard that um, you could have heard a pin drop in the court other than sarah's very australiana voice just telling the taxi company where she was and where she wanted to go. The call lasted 45 seconds, less less than a minute. Um, and that is, as far as we know, the last interaction that Sarah had with anyone other than her killer. Yeah. And that call, it was requested by the media that it be released to the public, but uh, Justice Hall decided not to release that to the public because of the distress that it would cause to the family. And we know that after that call, the taxi driver who took that call took the stand and he told us that he did arrive to pick up Sarah, but she wasn't there. Mm. And he ended up taking another lift from some people who had been at the same club as her. Yeah. Um, and, that, and that's what I was talking about, the people in the orbit. So the, 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 the taxi driver that uh, was directed to that call, he actually didn't take the call, but he was directed to it. Um, testified that he would have been minutes, I mean, less than five yeah. minutes away, did a little U-turn, got to the spot where Sarah said she was at the phone box and she wasn't there. There was one other sighting of her um, by a group that had, was driving past that had spotted a, a, a young girl matching her description, uh, leaning on a, ironically, on a Telstra um, junction box on the other side of the road, apparently waiting for the cab. Um, but as I said, when the taxi got there, um, she was nowhere to be seen and yep. uh, tragically has not been seen since. And then we fast forward a few months later to Saturday the 8th of June and a young woman, Jane Rimmer, she's 23 and, and like Sarah, she goes for a night out with friends. She goes to a local pub, the OBH, uh, then she goes off to Claremont. And then during this evening, we see for the first time video footage of her mm. at the clubs on that night. Mm. Yeah. And she did planned exactly the sort of night that Sarah had planned just months earlier. She'd got her haircut. This is a Saturday night, uh, Saturday day. She got the haircut. 
Um, she went to see her mum, who worked at a, new, a nearby pub, had a drink there, um, and then got a cab to Claremont, met up with some friends, and had another um, good night. Um, and as you said, Nat, on this occasion, this night was actually caught on camera, on the CCTV cameras in, the, in both venues, um, and on the streets of Claremont. Um, and so when we hear Sarah's last words, um, in this case, we actually see Jane's last moments before it is believed that she somehow comes to cross paths with the person who killed her. Um, there were, it was quite primitive CCTV, but you could clearly make out it was Jane. You could clearly make out it, um, where she was, what she was doing. But then because the CCTV was not um, totally recording at all times, it was on a cycle. Several cameras at, at, at various points on the outside of the pub. And uh, there was a gap of about 30 seconds between the moment we see Jane and then the CCTV cycles all the way through the other cameras and comes back and, uh, and she's gone. Um, but tragically, in this case, we know that Sarah's body has never been discovered. In Jane's case, it was. And that is when the Claremont killings uh, became killings. Yes. Um, and it became what police knew then was a major, major crime and has now become the most complex, longest-running, most expensive, most scrutinised murder investigation, not just in Western Australia, but in Australia. Now, horrifically and tragically, several months later, Friday the 14th of March 1997, and Kira Glennon, a young 27-year-old woman, and she was, we know, a lawyer. Um, she was having St. Patrick Day drinks mm. with some work colleagues, and they wanted to go out into Claremont. And she really wasn't all that keen, was she, at the time, because she had, I think, her sister's hen's night mm. the next night. But they talked her into it and, you know, she jumped in the car and off they all went to Claremont. And witnesses then talked us through what happened on Kira's last night. Yeah. So uh, Kira had only just come back into the country. Um, she'd been traveling. She was older than um, Jane and Sarah. She was 27, had established herself as a lawyer in Perth. And then as a lot of uh, young people finding out what their path in life is, um, she took off um, overseas. Um, her mum, uh, Una, and her dad, Dennis, um, had also um, history of, of living abroad, but had, had emigrated there, an Irish family by background, but had moved to Perth, settled here. And then Kira, Kira got a little bit of wanderlust and went as well. And had just, just returned in, in the March um, several reasons she'd, she'd done her travelling and also her sister Denise um, was getting married uh, very very soon after and so she uh, she returned for that what everyone thought would be a happy uh, joyous event she'd literally been back at work a week it was her first week back at work and this was the Friday night where um, there'd been some drinks at work uh, a, a welcome back Kira St Patrick's Day just a a general jolly up in the office um, and then some of her colleagues some of her closer colleagues convinced her um, to come out with them to to carry on the uh, the festivities as you said now Kira wasn't that 
wasn't that enamored by the idea. She was tired. She, she, you know, probably a little bit jet lagged and and and, and full on week at, at work. But um, being the the, the sociable uh, young woman that she was, she agreed. They went into Claremont, um, and once again we have CCTV footage of Kira arriving. Um, at the at the the Claremont Hotel as it is now, the Continental as it was then, um, and again we have very blurry vision and, and different accounts of exactly what time she left. But she wasn't there long. She stayed maybe twenty minutes, probably not even long enough to have a drink. Um, said her goodbyes, and uh, and and left, and that was the last that was ever seen of Kira, apart from several sightings between her leaving the bar and the strongest evidence of the three of a, of a sighting of someone that looked very much like Kira getting into or certainly leaning into and interacting with the driver of a white car, a white station wagon that had by these eyewitness reports being sighted in Claremont earlier in the evening and was driving in Kira's direction, drove past her, slowed down, stopped. Kira was seen to lean into the car, seemingly interact with the driver, um, and then it would appear went off uh, in that car. And it was really quite chilling. Some of the witnesses that gave evidence, and there were quite a lot of them who gave evidence in relation to Kira, and it was quite chilling because, you know, for instance, one of the uh, witnesses said that they had come out of doing a shift at the Thai restaurant Mm -hmm. and had said something to someone else in the car when they saw Kira and said, oh my goodness, I wonder if she'll be the next one. And this just goes to just how much fear there was in the community at that point that people were saying when they saw a woman by herself mm. in Claremont, will she be the next victim? Yeah, absolutely. And Kira's recent arrival back in Western Australia, you would have to speculate at least whether she was fully aware of what had happened in the in the previous uh, 14 months or so with the disappearance of Sarah, Sarah, with the murder of Jane. She was a highly intelligent, highly sociable, very well liked, um, just a, you know, an apparently very good at anything she turned her hand to. So you, you would think she would be aware, but whether she was fully aware, mm-hmm. whether she was fully in, in, embedded in that fear, um, we don't, we, we simply don't know. Because unfortunately, we'll 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 never be able to ask her because she um, she suffered the same fate as Jane and and Sarah on that night. And there was even you know when we talk about this fear, um, there was these young guys who were sitting outside a burger joint there on Sterling Highway, which is where the three women disappeared from, and yelling out things like, "Oh hey, you're crazy to hitchhike." Mm, yeah, they were um, as you said. Now they, they, these. Witnesses were um, labelled the Burger Boys during the trial. There were three young men who had been out uh, on a very similar night, um, probably a few more drinks than Kira, yes. um, and, had, and had gone to the local Hungry Jacks to uh, to get a feed before going home. They were sat at the bus stop on the opposite side of the road. 
and this is the strongest. This, 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 these are the sightings that I referred to earlier about the the young woman walking past them. They even one of them even called out to Kira, "You're mad, or you're crazy," and and apparently Kira uh, gestured to them. No, I'll be fine. Waved her right. hand in the air. Yeah. Um, and it was that those sightings and those eyewitness accounts that give us the strongest indication that that the last person that Kira interacted with on that night was the driver of this white car. That's right. And you also heard in the court from a whole lot of other witness who, witnesses who around this time were picked up in the Claremont mm. area by a lone man in a car mm. with a Telstra logo uh, who claimed to work for the company. Um, just tell us about some of those witnesses. Yeah. So this is right in the same window uh, of time that we're talking about here. Sarah, January 96, Kira, 97. The prosecution brought forward uh, numerous witnesses, seven in all, I think, uh, that were, again, given a, a collective label of the Telstra living witnesses. And as I said earlier, they're all young women that had been out in Claremont or the surrounds, uh, were on their own or vulnerable, had maybe too many drinks after dark, were on the street and were either approached by a man in a white car, some saying that it bore a Telstra logo, hence the Telstra Living Witness moniker, and were offered a lift, in some cases given a lift. Uh, in, in, and in one case, um, the, you know, possibly again one of the most um, compelling eyewitness stories that we've heard during the trial so far of a woman who was given a lift, was, uh, was dropped off, but then the driver of this car uh, persisted, shall we put it that way, mm. tried to grab her, tried to kiss her. This is on the side of the road, a complete stranger she'd never met before this evening. Um, but luckily this this uh, this witness, as she described it, um, had some martial arts experience. And she told him? And she told him in no uncertain terms that she would use it if he didn't back off. Um, and he did. But... And she did ask him, though, didn't she, while they were in the car, she said to him, well, what are you doing mm. driving around at two o'clock in the morning um, like this? Mm. And he said to her, well, I'm picking up damsels in distress yeah. like it, yourself. Yeah, exactly. Which feeds at, into the very heart of the prosecution theory um, to this case, that as shocking as the three murders were, they represented the culmination of a pattern of behavior um, by the person responsible. Um, they said uh, that this man is Bradley Robert Edwards and they have brought forward a, a, a story of him that goes way back um, that involves increasingly disturbing, violent, sexually uh, predatory behavior um, some of which has now been proved be, uh, without a doubt um, that they say culminated in the kidnapping of these three women um, and, and their ultimate murder. Well, let's go back to that start, which is in Huntingdale in 1988, when a young woman is asleep in her bed and she's woken by a man on top of her, which initially she thinks is her boyfriend, um, and then realises that it isn't. Mm. So this uh, Huntingdale is, I think we can safely say this, not as salubrious as Claremont. It's an outer suburb of, of Perth, uh, working to middle class. Um, and 
in the area around this time had been a lot of strange goings on, shall we say. Underwear had been going missing from washing lines. Underwear had been going missing from within houses during break-ins. There had been attempted break-ins. Um, there had been sightings of a person wearing women's night clothes or lingerie. And then on this night in 1988, um, as you say, Nat, this young woman, teenager, was asleep in her own bed with her parents and her brother very close by in the next room when a man breaks into the house, pulls the phone cord out of the wall, goes into her bedroom, closes the door behind him um, and attacks her, jumps on her, straddles her, pins her down and violently accosts her um, to the point where she is fearful for her life and said so during her very emotional testimony in court. As you said, Nat, she believed, hoped that it was actually her boyfriend that was doing this. Um, but she reached behind her to touch her attacker's face, felt very rough stubble, which her boyfriend did not possess and realized that this was not some sort of sick joke. But this was a very, very serious situation that she found herself in. But to her um, ultimate and eternal credit, she fought. She fought really hard. She scratched at him. She, she battled him to such an extent that he let go um, and fled. But not before he had dropped something in her room and not before she had seen a very good silhouette of him in her doorway, um, as she described a, a, a large well-built man wearing a woman's nightdress. Um, she obviously screamed. She obviously uh, attracted the attention of her parents and her, her family close by. And um, that was when this ordeal on the night ended. Um, but it, it, it persisted for 28 years um, until we ultimately found out that that man in that nightdress that attacked her was Bradley Robert Edwards. Which he did admit to, not initially, but then he later did change his plea to guilty on that matter. Mm, yes, which was a bombshell. Uh, I know that's a bit of a media tabloid cliche, but it really was because we had been expecting this trial to have three counts of murder one of break and enter and assault and one of rape. But very um, shortly before the trial was due to begin, Mr. Edwards stood up and very, very quietly um, pled guilty to the Huntingdale attack um, and another attack which happened in between this one and Sarah's disappearance. Now, the prosecution say that um, this attack, along with the ones we're going to explain to you next... Uh, fit in at a time where Bradley Edwards is going through emotional turmoil. So let's chat a little bit about who Bradley Edwards is. Moving forward from 1989 um, during the Huntingdale incident, mm -hmm. what was his life like after that? Well, um, so Bradley Robert Edwards was and is um, an ordinary bloke, uh, it would appear, from 
a- anyone who would, who would viewed him up close and, and from afar. He left school um, with uh, some qualifications, but not, not many. Um, got a job almost immediately out of school with Telstra as a technician. And uh, over the next almost uh, 30 years, worked for the same company in, in various roles, but mostly as a technician that worked on telephone, internal and external telephone communication systems in large businesses, corporate businesses. But uh, back at, at this time, he was just starting out on this journey, uh, this life journey. And very soon after that, um, he met the, the woman who would become his, his first wife. They, uh, they met really in a bit of a whirlwind uh, romance. Uh, Mr. Edwards hadn't had um, any real serious relationships um, up until this point. Um, they met. Um, they very quickly moved in together. Um, and very soon after, there was talk of marriage. Um, in 1990, um, when he was he was well in, well ensconced in his in his in, at Telstra by this time, uh, they moved into their um, their first real home together. Um, and as I say, the, uh, the 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 lady who did become his first wife, who we who, who we can't identify because of a, a pre-existing court order, um, was very keen, very keen to get married to Mr. Edwards. Um, but this sparked something that the prosecution says is very significant in the case, what has been dubbed the emotional turmoil. Um, this is the theory, the prosecution theory as to why Mr. Edwards committed the crimes that we know he's committed and the crimes that he's alleged to have committed. And they say these crimes correlate in time with emotional peaks and troughs throughout his throughout his. Uh, his life at this point from 1990 through to 97 Um, and 1990 is a significant moment because Mr Edwards was working for Telstra at that time and was working at a place called Hollywood Hospital a a small um, former recuperative army hospital which became a, a public hospital he was working there fixing the phones and for some reason he grabbed a worker there tried to drag her to a secluded part of the hospital um, from behind using um, his significant strength and force but was again was foiled um, by the uh, by the efforts of this woman who was a social worker at the hospital and he was basically caught red-handed the security guard at um, Hollywood was there within seconds um, and Mr Edwards put up literally no defense he said I don't know why I did it mm-hmm. but I did do it and this 1990 event is said to coincide almost to the day with when he was being pressured, as he puts it, by his uh, girlfriend at the time um, to become his wife. And he had also found out at the same time that she might have uh, might have cheated on him behind his back with a former boyfriend. Yeah, And that is the first peak or trough, whichever you want to put it, um, that the prosecution point to. And they point to many others, several others along the way, um, over the next seven years um, that, he, that that correlate with these crimes that he has committed and that he is alleged to have committed. 
And I think for that, he pleaded guilty to a common assault. Mm -hmm. He got two years probation, Mm -hmm. but he did have to take a sexual assault course, although it wasn't registered as a sexual assault at the time. It's not what he pleaded guilty to. Um, What we found interesting and what came out during the trial was that this assault, there was no record of it that was discovered or presented to the court as being on... Um, Bradley Edwards' work records, mm. his Telstra work records, and that will become significant as we're chatting through this episode yeah, to people. That's absolutely right, Nat. So he was he pleaded guilty, um, and he was uh, told to um, go away and think about what he'd done. Um, what he didn't do, um, uh, according to the prosecution, was really address any of these issues, um, and certainly his employer didn't seem to address him because he kept his job and very soon after that was actually promoted um, within Telstra um, to become a more senior technician Um, and as I said he he managed to keep that job for uh, many many years after. And he moved on with his life then and in 1991 he did get married Mm -hmm. to his fiancée and then in 1994, that marriage starts to unravel a bit and Bradley Edwards starts spending a lot of time on the computer. His wife starts to feel like it's all falling apart and something significant happens because she meets another man. Mm, yes, that's true. So um, we've heard all this from uh, from both horses' mouths, if you want to put this, that the, the first wife um, gave evidence in person and... The third wheel, as we've come to call him, also gave evidence in person. And this third wheel was a man that uh, Mr. Edwards' first wife had met through her work. They became very close. This man actually moved in to the marital home where Mr. Edwards and his first wife were living. Um, And they carried on a sexual intimate relationship at times in the next room from where Mr. Edwards was as you said, and that's spending more and more time on the computer. And this period of time relates to another emotional spike, and this is in 1995. And a young girl, like the other young ladies, has been out in Claremont with friends, and she is walking home when she is grabbed from behind, pulled into the bushes, and violently raped. Mm. And we heard about this in court and this very, very brave young woman was in court when her statements about this particular night were read out to the court. Yeah. um, And as you say, a very young woman at the time, teenager again, Claremont again, uh, walking home alone again and abducted again. So you can see the parallels there almost immediately. And we've um, and we've heard from uh, people on the podcast that police, when Sarah went missing, um, less than a year later, also made the parallels because this was a, a really serious crime at the time too. This young woman was um, abducted, hooded, ca- bodily carried into a vehicle, driven around, taken to a cemetery of all places, raped, raped again. Dumped in bushes, picked up, dumped in bushes again and left, seemingly uh, as far as her attacker was concerned, with with no um, attention or thought of, of what her injuries might be. 
um, as you say, the bravery of this young woman at the time was uh, was staggering. She got herself up, even though she was semi-naked, got herself to the, the Hollywood Hospital, ironically just around the corner, raised the alarm, and um, from there was uh, investigated and questioned quite vigorously by the police about what had happened to her. Just as in Huntingdale, she had to wait more than 20 years for confirmation of who her attacker was. But just as in Huntingdale, weeks before the murder trial began, Mr. Edwards finally admitted that it was him that had committed this horrific crime. And again, the prosecution say it was the impending breakdown of his marriage, the emotional um, turmoil that he was going through at home, um, the 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 feeling that his wife was betraying him, almost in front of his own in his own home, almost in front of his face. That the prosecution say triggered this dark side in him, which in in turn triggered this attack. Um, and as you say, that years later, that young woman who is now a a, a middle-aged woman was in court to watch Mr. Edwards admit to that attack, admit that he was her attacker, and then she was in court to hear the details of that attack that she had given to the police at the time and in various statements over the years. It became a little bit too much for her. She did leave the court at one point when those details were being read, but uh, no one will ever think any less of her for that because... Um, it was, you know, it was her bravery at the time to give such a detailed account of what had happened to her that ultimately uh, led police to link her attack to the Claremont crimes. Um, and it, it, it could be, it is one of the key planks in the prosecution case against Mr. Edwards. That's right. And in the next podcast of this catch-up series, we will explain to you the link and how the DNA comes into play into moving this forward. Um, well, then, Christmas 1995, um, there's an incident that is quite distressing, emotional for Edwards. Um, let's talk about that. This is something that happens between his wife of the time and the live-in lover who was living in the house with the three of them. Yeah, and that, so this was the the beginning, the real beginning of the end of the Mr. Edwards' first marriage. This is when he walks in on his wife and her lover um, kissing in, in one of the bedrooms at the house. There's a huge blow-up. Um, he leaves, she leaves. It's, it, it's a scene. Um, and this is real, really the catalyst um, for the, the Mr. Edwards' first wife to move out of the marital home um, permanently. Um, and it also sparks um, something in Mr. Edwards that um, the wife's lover says he hadn't really seen before because in a phone call, when this is all being discussed, um, the, the third wheel, as we referred to him, told the court that Mr. Edwards said that I'm, I want to kill you, I'm going to kill you. Um, and that was a side of Mr. Edwards that, uh, that this man who had lived with him 
um, for quite a quite a while said he had um, had never seen in him before. Um, but it is obviously a side that the prosecution say um, Mr. Edwards um, has in him. And she said in her testimony that Bradley Edwards hadn't tried to reconcile with her, although we did hear evidence that um, he had gone to Mandra mm. down south, where she was living at the time, to ask her out to the fireworks on January the 26th mm. in 1996. Yeah. And so this, again, is another of the, the spikes, the emotional spikes that the prosecution point to um, that in their um, argument correlate um, very, very closely, almost too closely to be a coincidence with these crimes. And, that, and this is one of those. Um, Australia Day, 1996... By this time, the wife is is living, as you say, out of the marital home with her parents, some way away from Perth. She testified that Mr. Edwards turned up on that day um, to talk to her um, in some capacity. Um, he was actually invited in, it sounds like, had a little um, something to eat. And then at that time, asked her whether she wanted to attend a fireworks display with him. Um Fireworks are a traditional way of celebrating Australia Day. She declined that offer and he um, very shortly after left. And it is that window. Um, We know now from evidence recently heard that those fireworks began at 8.30pm that night, quite close to where the wife was living at the time. We know Mr Edwards was back at work the following day, around about 7 or 8 o'clock. There are 12 hours there that are unaccounted for, and it is in, in those 12 hours that Sarah Spears went missing um, and was murdered, um, according to the prosecution, even though her remains have never been discovered. And then a few months later, in March of that year, Edward's ex-wife falls pregnant and there was some confusion here with the evidence as to when exactly mm. Bradley Edwards actually found out that his ex-wife was now having a baby mm. to her lover. Mm. Correct. I mean, there's no doubt that that news was relayed to him. When, um, exactly when, um, was a little bit of a bone of contention because there was some um, debate over uh, medical records. But it was certainly before the date that Jane went missing and it was certainly close to the date that Jane went missing and that is the next in the series of spikes that news from Mr Edwards's first wife that she is pregnant to another man the man that Mr Edwards had invited into his home and lived with under his same roof is said to be another of those triggers and this trigger according to the prosecution theory led Mr. Edwards to go out on that night and uh, abduct Jane or pick certainly pick up Jane from outside the county where she was waiting for a lift or a taxi or, or some sort of transport and uh, murder her in, in brutal fashion. And then the third spike um, and period of what the prosecution say is the emotional turmoil is in March of 1997, and this is when the marital house is sold and you heard from witnesses 
as to those dates mm-hmm. and the time of settlement. Yeah, correct. Um, so that we have moved on a little bit, um, and the wife and the marriage, um, or the lack of marriage, has certainly moved on a little bit by this time. Uh, so far, that the marital home that they did share um, was being sold um, through a, a property settlement agency, and we saw all the documents um, to show um, when that was. Um, and once again, in very close approximation time to uh, the day that uh, that Kira goes missing. And so that is the that is the overarching uh, context that the prosecution attempts to put all these crimes in. They don't need to have a theory. They don't need to have a motive. But um, as anyone who, who who watches and studies crime and true crime knows, a motive does go a lot a long way to to uh, understanding or, or making an understanding of, 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 of crimes that are seemingly, you know, just so out of the realms of possibility um, that they would, they would seem inconceivable to, to, the, to the vast majority of people. But we've got to stress that the, that is all circumstantial evidence. Um, and the judge in this case, and it is a judge alone case, there is no jury in this case, the judge alone in this case, Stephen Hall, We'll have to rule whether he takes that theory into um, his uh, his office when he comes to um, deliver his verdicts and cogitate on these verdicts because it is circumstantial and the prosecution um, rely on it, but the defence say there is no real cement to, to, to bring all that together. It is speculation and as such shouldn't make up uh, the part of the judge's uh, the judge's decision-making process. So he will rule on that at the end of the prosecution case before the defence has even started, um, out of fairness to the defence, because if they have to counter that, they uh, they must be given the chance to, um, and they must be able to give the chance to prepare witnesses um, to if they want to counter that argument. But that's uh, as it stands at the moment, that is what the prosecution say um, was the driver um, of the three crimes that we've now detailed that Mr. Edwards we know committed and the three murders that he denies committing. One of the questions being asked by a lot of people who've been listening to this podcast is if, in fact, the prosecution who say that Bradley Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, if that is the case, why did he stop? Mm. And the prosecution have a theory for that as well. They do um, the, on, on this emotional roller coaster that Mr. Edwards goes on um, over at least seven years. It would appear, or, or definitely, uh, definitely five years. Um, he meets his second wife in 1997, um, a lady who he woos with roses, um, takes to a local restaurant on a on a almost a blind date. This lady already has a child, um, but that doesn't apparently doesn't put Mr. Edwards off. Um, and they very quickly, again, much like the, the relationship with the first wife, they very quickly get very serious. And this, they say, is the moment that settled Mr. Edwards in his life to such an extent that there was nothing like this um, committed by him up until the day that he was arrested in, in December 2016. 
And the the little girl that went on that first date with Mr. Edwards, the woman who was to become Mr. Edwards' second wife, was still living with Mr. Edwards on the day he was arrested all those years later. She was, and it remains, his, his stepdaughter. They were very close, the stepdaughter, certainly for a, a, a big chunk of time after Mr. Edwards arrested, um, maintained a relationship with him, um, went to see him in prison. Um, and for all those years after, for all intents and purposes, Mr. Edwards was the hard-working, dedicated family man that all his neighbours and all his friends um, and all his workmates believed him to be. Uh, little athletics, stalwart, even received some community awards for his efforts in the little, little athletics community. Long, long, long time um, employee of Telstra with apparently no blemishes on his record, despite what happened in 1990. Um, up until the 22nd of December 2016, when very heavily armed police came knocking on his door um, and arrested and charged him for the murder of Jane Rimmer and Kira Glenn. And this was a very interesting point um, for you when you were sitting in the court at this time because up until now Bradley Edwards had shown very little to no emotion whatsoever but it was interesting at this time that when they played home videos and what have you this is where you first saw a smile here and there and some emotion from Bradley Edwards. Yeah very much so. So um, Mr Edwards' second wife gave evidence in person uh, via a via a video link but and very personal evidence she was asked um, very personal questions um, about their life together um, not as many as you might expect um, but they certainly shone a light and opened a, a small window into their life together and and how it ended because she had left Mr. Edwards some months before he had been arrested, and we still don't really know why. But during that evidence, there were little glimpses, little snippets, little little phrases that she dropped in to her evidence that gave you a hint that, that something really wasn't right with the way that she came to see him. Um, she said at points she was sick of the lies at another point she said she feared for her life and at another point um, she was asked about notes that she'd taken of very detailed notes about from her own bank statement um, tabulating monies that Mr Edwards was very regularly taking out of ATMs all over Perth but you're right Nat that it was those uh, photographs home videos that were shown in court through her that um through this whole process um, has opened Mr. Edwards up as, an, as, as, as somewhat emotional. He smiled, he, he, he teared up, he looked distressed, he looked um, delighted at points to see this glimpse of his, of his old life again um, and, uh, and us seeing it for the first time. And this wasn't a purely voyeuristic exercise by the prosecution. This was done for a reason, and the reason was that in at least two of those home videos, you can very clearly see Mr. Edwards by a white 
station wagon um, of the type very, very similar to the one described by the Telstra Living Witnesses and the one described by the Burger Boys that they say Kira Glennon entered um, on that night in April 1997. While it was um, where you saw glimpses of emotion in the court, it was also a time of great frustration for a lot of people Hmm. sitting in the court also because when um, Brad Edwards' second wife said that she feared for her life... The question was not asked why. And this was a great frustration to everybody in the court that day. Mm, Yes. It's one of the, after nearly 60 days, and there's been several million questions asked, I would suggest. Um, You could probably count them up in the court transcript (laughs) if you had a year or two spare. But it's this question and this answer that has left um, all of us thinking, what was she going to say? What, what was it that she wanted to say um, and in why? that court and why? Why, why did she want to say it then? Um, as a, you know, a long-time court watcher, court reporter, you could sort of see why the prosecution, the judge, and certainly the defence wouldn't want to go there because it, would open, it could open up a real can of worms in a legalistic sense. But from a purely... Um, storytelling sense or getting to the truth sense or wanting to know the full picture sense it was hugely frustrating um hopefully uh, when all this is over um, and we give this lady the chance to tell her story which we most certainly will i would i would guarantee every media organization in the in the state if not the country will uh, will approach her at some stage to see if she wants to talk um hopefully she will get that chance but uh for now um, we are just left with uh, left with those um, little tidbits of, of, of what, what might have been going on. And just before we leave you for this part of the trial, and um, you can pick up what's happening in the next podcast, just a little bit about the families and people who are inside the court, apart from the main players, such as the prosecution, the defence, the judge. Um, also in the court are the family. And we've got the family of the victims and you've also got in court the family of the accused. Yeah, um, this has been an extraordinary case, an extraordinary trial. So long, so detailed and so emotional. Um, and most of that emotion has come from behind where we sit in the media bench and behind where all the uh, courtroom action is because that is behind us and behind them is where the families of Miss Spears, Miss Rimmer and Miss Glennon have spent many, many hours and many, many days watching proceedings. That is where the um, victim in the Huntingdale matter has spent many, many days viewing, observing um, and taking in the proceedings. And it, that is also where the victim of the Karakata rape sat and watched when Mr. Edwards admitted being her attacker and has spent also um, significant time watching on um, while all this is going on. Um, They are bonded. All those people are bonded together. Um, I can say that quite confidently because I see them very often in court. They interact with each other. They support each other. They smile with each other. They hold each other's hand. 
um, because they have been bonded by this process over uh, decades now and, um, and, and weeks and weeks in recent times through this trial. And the times when you've most felt for certainly Miss Rimmer's family, her mother was there on the first day, her sister and brother have been there many days since then, um, and certainly Miss Glennon's father, Dennis, who's pretty much been at every single day of the trial. Um, the times that you felt most for them is is the times in court that is that the descriptions of of when their very dear loved ones were discovered, their bodies were discovered. Um, that has been by far the most uh, difficult part of the trial for everyone involved. So sensitive that the screens in court that have shown the uh, the videos of the body's discovery and the subsequent post-mortems have not been shown to the general public by ruling of the judge. He deemed that that would be tra too traumatic. Um, but the mere descriptions of what both those poor people that found those bodies found, <clears throat> the police that then had to deal with those findings, and the pathologists that then had to deal with the post-mortems after, um, you only need to hear their words <clears throat> um, to know um, how badly those bodies were treated, uh, how badly those bodies were, had decomposed, um, and how badly uh, those family members must feel having to hear those details. That's right. It has been an extraordinary and really quite devastating 55 days um, listening to the evidence. So in the next podcast, we will recap the second half of the trial and that will cover what witnesses reported hearing after the disappearance of the women, like you've just mentioned, the discovery of their bodies and a recap on all the forensic evidence that is now being spoken through the court process. So hope you can join us for part two of this Jump In series. Tim and I will be back with you tomorrow. This podcast was produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. Flashpoint, returning to Seven on Mondays at 9pm. Demanding change and discussing issues that matter to West Australians.